Las Vegas, famous, fabulous playground of the West. A wide open town that never goes to sleep. Vegas! Vegas, baby, Vegas! You're either in or you're out. Right now. My best mates are going to Las Vegas this weekend. I'm told it's incredible. Las Vegas, here we go! Pack your bags and get ready. You're going to Vegas with someone who knows Vegas inside and out. This is Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi, the podcast. There's been a lot of changes in Las Vegas. You go back to the 40s and 50s and what happened then to what happened now. There's been all sorts of incredible changes. And we're going to talk to somebody who's seen a lot of those changes. Mo Scarazzo, a great musician that came out here. He's got an incredible background. You came, first of all, Mo, welcome to the show. You came from Pennsylvania. What brought you out to Las Vegas? Work. (laughs) You know, that's the only place you can work with Las Vegas. Make a living playing music. We're up from Pittsburgh, there wasn't any work. The only thing that was there, maybe the symphony. That was it. They played weddings. So as an aspiring uh, musician then, this was kind of like the big leagues, I guess, right? Where not only was there a lot of work, but this is where you could really showcase your talents. Oh, yeah, it was great. You know, you just, I was so busy when I came into town in 56. And I was working the lounges, and uh, you'd work one gig to the other, one gig to the other, because there weren't too many musicians in town. Population was, what, 28,000, 30,000 30, then. Strip was the two-lane highway, and that was it, you know, and a lot of work. A lot of I worked with everybody. Well, yeah, and we're going to talk about some of those people, but kind of give us an idea. You're coming in the fifth, late 50s. And as you say, the population is nothing like it is now. I mean, it's, you can't even compare it. But even the excitement of the thing, did you just, over this time, just watch this grow and grow? And are, are, are you surprised now at what's happened to this town that you came to uh, half a century ago? Very surprised. Very surprised. It's completely different. It's completely different. No more gigs for music, for musicians. They can't gig anywhere. There's no showrooms, uh, there's no more big bands, there's no more orchestras, there's nothing here. The string players, they used to have beautiful string sections and things, they just, where are they going to work? They they all went to L.A. trying to work there, you know, trying to get, trying to work there. There's no jobs here, nothing. So it's something then that uh, where at one time you could come here, make a living and stay here and be busy all the time. Is it now a case where they come in with whatever particular act, they do their thing, and then they leave? I mean, there's not a lot of house musicians the way there was then. No, no, there was. At one time, there was 2,000 musicians working on a strip. Wow. Lucky if you get uh, 20. <laughs> there's a difference, you know. It really is. Well, your career has been fascinating. You know, I was just looking over your bio, and, uh, you know, you work with them all. Um, in the early days, a couple of people I want to talk to, for example, I noticed you worked with Louis Armstrong and uh, Ella Fitzgerald, two huge talents. Th- that was an interesting time because at that time, they, they you know, African-Americans, they couldn't even stay in town. What was that like, like working with them and so forth? Was that, that must have made you really cool at the time, too, you know? Oh, that was great. They weren't. They weren't allowed in the uh, in the hotel, only on the stage. On the stage, they weren't allowed in their dressing room or anything. They lived on the west side. They called it the west side, which is actually the north side. But uh, 
like Sammy Davis, the story with Sinatra and Sammy Davis where it's uh, at the Sands, where they didn't want uh, Sammy staying at the Sands. And Sinatra said, well, if they don't stay here, you don't have me either. And that kind of changed stuff. But uh, before that, you know, I, I remember I was working with Billy Eckstein and his wife. And my wife got very, you know, we got very close. And so uh, they walked through the casino together and everybody was looking at, looking at him. And, and, and my wife says, why is everybody looking at us? It's the Sands. And she says, because you're with a black woman. And my wife's never, it never dawned on her because we're from back east where it, it never mattered back there, you know. Here it did. Here it did. What I think would change this whole place was Fats Domino. Remember? Yeah. <laughs> he was working at a Flamingo in the lounge. And he, um, he weren't allowed anywhere. Nowhere near the casino. If you take a break, you just have to go down the basement. They had a little dressing room for them down the basement. And Count Basie's band also. But anyway, <laughs> Fazdomo, he went out on the table like at 2 o'clock in the morning and dropped like ten or $20,000. So to keep him working there, they picked up his option all the time because they kept dropping it. And so then they said, oh, well, it's all right. You can stay at the hotel. Well, I mean, it's definitely a, a, a different world right now. But, you know, and, and I find that interesting that when you came from back east where, you know, nobody even gave that a thought. So really then I guess in the Las Vegas of that town, even though there was all this big, big name entertainment, it still actually was like one of these like small western towns that really w didn't match what was going on in the entertainment world. There was work everywhere. A musician that came here, you know, they can, there was gigs all over town. Like I said, I used to work two, two, three jobs a day. I mean, for years, for 10 years, you know. My wife used to bring me clean shirts to change in between shows and stuff like that. You know, it was just busy, just busy. So much work, it was ridiculous. Well, you can't find a job. Well, yeah, and you worked with everybody. I wanted to talk with you about a few of these people. Um, did you have any particular favorite? We're going to get into Dean Martin because I think that's really interesting. But I know you worked with Bobby Darren, Vic Damone, Jack Jones. Uh, did you have any particular favorites? You about, boy, you loved when they came into town that just as a musician, they kind of challenged you. Well, I loved working with Dino because he was very, very private. He never bothered you. He just wanted to be left, left alone. He was a beautiful man. I loved working for him. You know, Jack Jack Jones was great. They were great, great singers, yeah. good people, you know. Bobby Darren, he was fair. <laughs> he was a fair guy. You know, he's big, big-headed. He wanted to be another Sinatra, you know, but I don't think he ever got there, you know. You talked about uh, Dean Martin, and we have this vision, you know, we, people play the old Rat Pack things, you know, where he's direct from the bar and all that sort of thing. I understand, though, he wasn't, uh, he could handle his alcohol actually quite well. Well, he always had a, a glass, everybody thought it was booze in a glass on the piano. Actually, it was apple juice. You know, it was really apple juice, and he would have a sip of that, you know, and he would have a, he'd have a drink. You know, you know, before he, to the audience, you know, here's to you and he'd drink, you know. That's Dino. He's a very private man, very private. 
And of course, you worked with his partner too, Jerry Lewis, uh, partner before he mm. went huge and doing the telethons. I really wanted to ask you about that. So I know Jerry Lewis doesn't have the same uh, personality that Dean has. What was that like? Well, I did about I did uh, twenty twenty telethons, you know, and uh, it was great. It was great. What I found out was. Uh, Jerry Lewis, uh, he was a good, you know, good, good performer naturally and everything. But he was different. I mean, he was Jerry Lewis was Jerry Lewis. You know, it's uh, I can't say much about that. You know. Well, I mean, do you, are you saying he? Is, I understand he's got a reputation of being a little hard to work with. Was he? Was he difficult to work with, or was that something that you let the other people deal with? Well, no, with the orchestra. Yeah. See, those guys never. Maybe with the owners, or maybe with as far as the money's concerned. But not with the orchestra. The entertainers was always pretty good with the band. They were always very good with the orchestra. They never bothered you too much, you know. Unless you're a goofball, you come in drunk or high or stoned then, you know, they don't want you around. I don't blame them. That's an interesting point. Uh, you know, people think of musicians, even in the early days, as, you know, some of them would dabble into drugs. Did you get much of that there? You know, did you see a lot of that there where these guys would come and go? Or were these people uh, more, um, you know, people that went home to their wives at the end of the day, that kind of thing? That's it. They went home to their wives at the end of the day. We had families raising kids. It was like normal, normal life. You know, you get a paycheck every week, you go to work. Get a paycheck every week. It was beautiful. Beautiful. Well, and you saw Vegas uh, jump, and I think, um, in fact, you, you worked with B Bally's back in the uh, 80s, and then uh, when the new MGM opened, I understand you did some things there too. Was that kind of the start, Mo, of uh, the, the – today's generation with these super mega hotels that are huge and so forth. Is that when you were starting to see the change? You know what I mean? Exactly. That's what, well, I became the musical director of Bellies in 88, 1988. I was on the band there, and the band leader, uh, Tommy Moses, passed away. But I used to do, I was like his kind of his contractor. So when he passed away, so they made me the musical director. I've stayed there for 14 years. Then, then from there, I went in 95 when uh, the MGM opened. I went there too. So I was doing both of them. And then Belly found out about it and didn't like that. So like they naturally, but there wasn't any music. Yeah. There wasn't any more bands to hire. There wasn't any musicians to hire anymore because showroom went to tapes. They went to tapes. Really? Yeah, there was you know what they were using tapes, and they wanted me to uh, the music that we were playing, the Jubilee, the mm -hmm. Jubilee show. Okay, they went. They had a full orchestra downstairs in the down the basement. I saw them when they were in the showroom. They were visible, you know, real nice, and then they moved them. Down the basement, I figured, oh, well, something's going on here, <laughs> you know. They moved them down the basement, then they moved them out. Wow. Then they start tape music. Wow. And that was, at that point, there really was nothing left to do, right? That was, that's right. That was left. I remember I was at the Musicians Union. They have a, the hotel, see, I, I became management, but I really, I was always a musician. I was always a union man and a musician. You know, that was my whole life. But I remember when I went to the, uh, to a meeting at the hotel, 
all the execs and stuff, and they're talking about tape music. So I, I went to the musicians' union and I told them, "Hey guys, next negotiations, be careful." I says, "Like, don't ask for too much. Just leave it like it is. You were only doing one show because they went to one show a night." I said, "Let's just do one show a night. You're making a thousand bucks a week. One show a night, six six days a week. You know, plus benefits, health and welfare, pension. You know." Oh, your management, Mo. You know, now you're your management, you know, you're big shot, you know, you're telling us that. I says, if you don't do that, you're gonna be sitting home watching television. And that's exactly what happened. It's incredible. Final question, Mo. Uh you know, you've been out of it for a little while, but you live here, this is your town and so forth. Is there anything that's out there today that boy that is one thing that I would recommend people to come visit when they come out to Vegas. Do you have anything like that in particular that if people can look, see one thing that you'd recommend? Not really. <laughs> no, I mean, this, this, the shows are all different. You go there, what is it? People flying in the air. I mean, there's nothing musical. You know, really musical. Except like, uh, just like uh, Steve was saying, you know, that... Uh, down, downtown at the uh, what's the name of the place you were just talking about yeah oh the gold nugget was a good spot upstairs where Sinatra was up there and there that was a great spot there was music everywhere there now there's nothing going on Mo thank you so much for uh, talking with us today really appreciate that thanks a lot What if every dollar you invested into your training program turned into $30 of revenue? What if your learning program was so engaging that your employees looked forward to annual trainings? And what if you could monitor the success and effectiveness of your curriculum with quantifiable metrics? Go to training.epsilonxr.com. E-learning has made each of these scenarios possible, utilizing tools such as virtual and augmented reality, simulations, and online instructor-led training provides a safe environment for employees to learn at their own pace. Go to training.epsilonxr.com. Here at Epsilon XR, we have 50 years of experience in creating powerful and effective training programs. We combine proven training methods with cutting-edge technology to create immersive training experiences. Are you ready to take your training program to the next level? Go to training.epsilonxr.com. Training.epsilonxr.com. Have your collectibles taken over your house? Well, maybe it's time for those treasures to find a new home, and I've got just the place to help you do that. The place to go is Baseball Cards and Bobbleheads, where they are always buying. Baseball Cards and Bobbleheads has over 35 years of experience buying collections of sports cards, memorabilia, bobbleheads, toys, action figures, comic books, Hot Wheels, Star Wars, movie posters, and more. If you've collected it, there's a good chance they'll buy it. No collections are too large or too small. Call Baseball Cards and Bobbleheads at 310-534-4180 or text them pictures of your collection. That number again is 310-534-4180. That's 310-534-4180. Baseball Cards and Bobbleheads, 310-534-4180. 
Okay, Sean, we need to talk about our training budget. We're spending almost $1,500 per employee each year. What's the plan? Well, ma'am, 42% of companies are saying that e-learning has led to an increase in revenue. What does that do about the travel expense? E-learning allows employees to learn wherever they are. Then we need to consider the time away from production. I heard that e-learning takes up to 60% less employee time than traditional classroom training. Perfect. Let's find a curriculum company, a development company, a learning management software company. Actually, Epsilon XR specializes in end-to-end learning solutions with tools such as instructor-led training, online classrooms, simulations, virtual and augmented reality, and curriculum development. Get Epsilon XR on the phone. Epsilon XR creates immersive learning environments that engage with your learner, resulting in improved information retention, which leads to better performance and ultimately an increase in revenue. Learn more at elearning.epsilonxr.com.